Support for Yagni is provided by Flipper Cloud. Are big launches stressing you out? Then you need feature flags. Flipper Cloud helps your team deploy the code now and then roll out features when you're good and ready. Get started for free at FlipperCloud.io. Today I'm joined by Aaron Francis, developer educator at PlanetScale and screencasting.com. He used to work in a shed for some reason. In my day, you had to go to a Borders bookstore at the mall to pick up a copy of MySQL 5 in action if you wanted to learn something about programming. Now you can barely scroll through YouTube without seeing a JavaScript gamer bro soy-facing in a thumbnail. We discuss whether or not we need programming books, and also touch on printing out documentation sites, why software culture is stuck in the year 2006, and the conflict between permissive software licensing and lazy reaction content. Welcome to Yagni. So today we're here to talk about programming books, and I will ask the question, programming books, do we need them? I'll start by saying there's a pithy phrase that says most books should be blog posts, most blog posts should be tweets, most tweets should not be written. So if we are to believe that, then why do we still need so many programming books? Well, I have a lot of opinions on that. I am here to take the opposite side and say, yes, we absolutely still need programming books. I think most business books should be blog posts. I will concede that point right away. And I think most blog posts should probably be tweets. I think programming books are different, though. So I don't know where you want to start. Do you consider programming books to have different characteristics than like a business book? I guess there's some programming books that are like the Java language reference book. And then there's some program books that are more opinion, sort of this is like a process that you should do. And then there's probably some that fall in in the middle. Like here is my prescription for how you write a PHP app with Laravel. And it's a little bit of reference material and a little bit of opinion. Do you think there's like a distinction in that? I mean, I think for me, the obvious one is like language reference books, probably not so useful anymore in the era of continually updated online resources. If you started programming in a certain time frame, you inevitably have a collection of, oh, I have the like Ruby 2 Bible and it's all we're on a different version of Ruby now. And so this pile of paper is, is not really useful. Yeah, I think that there's a huge difference between a programming book of, of any kind and a business book, we'll say. And I think like the business book has typically has one central thesis And then they spend 200 pages spinning out that central thesis. And I think that's where it can be like, well, you could have just compressed this into the central thesis. And I didn't, all the middle stuff was kind of useless. I actually think the books from the Basecamp crew are good about not doing that in that they are pretty short and pithy. And each chapter is pretty short and kind of makes its own point. Like that doesn't have to be crazy at work and the, I guess, remote okay or rework or whatever all their books are. Each one kind of is a standalone blog post that they've compiled down. But I think most business books, I could look behind me and find one. Most business books are like, all right, I get it. Like I get it in chapter one or two. And then it's, you're going to spend the rest of this book explaining the same thing to me again. So I think that's part of the difference between like a programming book and a business book. And then in terms of like, programming book 
types. I agree that language references are kind of like, I don't really need this at this point. Like I've got a, I think I actually just threw it away recently, but I've got a PHP 5.3 book sitting around and we're at PHP 8.3. And so what am I going to do with this? Nothing. Here's my central take on why programming books are good is it gives you like a universal overview of what is available, what is possible, what is present in the thing. So all of these were on audio, so you can't see it, but all of these over my shoulder are books on MySQL. And so do I go back to these books and reference things? Not very much. I did record a course on MySQL. For that, I did go back and reference some of that. But I think what the value of books like that is, is it shows you what all is available and then it gives you slots to put future information, right? So if you read a book like this, and honestly, I think you should probably skim the books. Like, I think you should read them pretty quickly. You don't read them in depth, but read them very quickly. And then what that does is that gives you a framework. Then every time you see a blog post, a tweet, something pop up on Hacker News, and you see these words that you recognize from the book, now you have a place to slot that information. And it doesn't just fall through the gaps because now your brain has been activated to be like, oh, okay, I remember reading part of that in the book. I know what some of that means. I have a cursory overview of what this article is talking about. Now I can read this article and get a more in-depth understanding of this one particular thing. Yeah, I guess a book is probably very good for situations where you don't even know the landscape at all, right? So like in your MySQL, your MySQL books, it's like maybe there's a chapter on windowing functions and maybe you don't necessarily need to read through and fully understand that. But later on, if you do need that, you at least have a shell placeholder for like, oh yeah, windowing functions is some kind of like sliding date range thing. And if you see it, you know of it versus I think a big criticism of books is that you're not necessarily learning like just in time what you need or it's not necessarily like contextual but in that case like you wouldn't necessarily even know the words or the concepts to look for if you're writing sql queries in your application and you're like oh i'm doing a bunch of like month-based cohort reporting and you aren't even familiar with the concept of windowing functions in general then how are you to i guess the answer is you will just ask ChatGPT like how to do it and it will maybe direct you with the, the right pointers yeah, to the Yeah, book, maybe. But. Maybe at this point that is true. I think the second part of that is like, let's say windowing is actually a great example because it's a relatively new thing in, in MySQL, something that I you know learned about relatively recently. And now anytime I see somebody tweet about a window function, I have a place to say, oh, I have a little collection of knowledge about window functions thanks to this book. I know that window functions are a thing, and I'm going to put this tweet into the window function bucket. And I think that's called like reticular activation. Whenever you buy a new car and you're like, ah, I'm now a Jeep driver. I have a Jeep. And suddenly every car on the road is a Jeep. That's actually always been true, but your brain was not primed to see the Jeeps on the road right, until you bought one. Right. Yeah, it's like your smartphone is not actually listening to what you said. You were looking for like stir fry recipes and, yes. and it started serving you ads. You just happen to be looking for that. And so you notice, whereas before you were sort of like blind to it. Yes, exactly. That is exactly correct. And the brain has all these filtering functions, right? Because there's too much information coming in just in life. Forget the internet, for goodness sakes. 
And so like, it's the same reason you can recognize or you can hear your name in a whole room of of background noise. If you hear your name, you're like, oh, I picked up on that. The brain is specifically set up to do that. And so when you read a book, you're putting all of these like all of these placeholders or these signposts in. So the next time you're on Hacker News and you see efficient window functions in MySQL, you're like, oh, I don't need to skip over that. Like that one will stand out. Whereas, I don't know, garbage collecting in Rust. I don't know anything about that. And I'm just going to be like, nah, I don't, I have no, it's not even going to catch my eye, I think is the point. Yeah. So the brain will be like, I don't have a place to put that. And so I'm going to skip over it. So I think one of the great benefits of a book is it lays a base for like subconscious information processing. And so you just, you read the book and then you carry on with your normal life and suddenly you're able to catch more things. It's like, if you start, the best thing to do when you have a big project or a paper or blog post or video is to start thinking about it as soon as possible even if you're going to background it, because then you start to notice like, oh, that would actually be a good example for this blog post. Whereas if you sit down and you're like, I got to put this thing out in an hour, you don't get the benefit of all of that, like letting it stew and letting your brain come up with, hey, this is a really good example here. You should use that in a week and a half or something like that. I agree with all this. I think maybe I will turn it back on you and say, if books are so good, why have you decided to read a bunch of books and make a video course versus read a bunch of books and making a book? Great question. Nobody reads books. <laughs> that That is the answer. And I think I've that got a, presents... I've got a quote here from a book, one of these like <laughs> seminal programming books here. It says, by reading this book, you're already learning more than most people in the software industry because one book is more than most programmers read mm-hmm. every year. Yep. I think that is a thousand percent true. It is entirely possible, in my opinion, for you to decide, for one to decide, a person to decide, I want to make a video course on XYZ, knowing nothing about that. And if you just pick like the top eight books in that on topic XYZ and you read them, you could make a very good educational course on that because nobody reads books. And the reason I did that is I needed and we can talk about this in a second, I needed a trustworthy source to teach me the ins and outs of this content. Then we'll come back to trustworthy. And I had a point of view on the content that the authors did not have. So the authors of all of these books, these MySQL books, had a point of view where it was like, we have to cover everything. Like We have to comprehensively cover MySQL. And my point of view was, I just want to talk about the parts that are relevant to like, application developers. And so there were entire chapters of these books that I just skipped over because I was like, I don't really need to know about like backups and replication because I my point of view is your provider should handle that for you, right? I just want to talk about from the application developer side, how do you be better at MySQL? And so that's one of the reasons I did it. I forget where I heard it, but I heard some business advice podcast and somebody was talking about in their company, it was like, how did you learn how to do paid advertising or something? The answer was that, oh, I just picked one book. I didn't even spend much time on the book, but I like actually read and did what was in the book <laughs> versus yep. people will buy like five, 10, 15 different like books and courses, not actually do any of the stuff or not like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to get this book about this process, but then I'm only going to do the 30% of the process that already was what I was doing. So I think there is something there that definitely books are useful in that regard, just because they're almost a little bit like 
forbidden secret knowledge or something, because like I said, nobody is going to sit through that and put in the work. Yes. On the other side of reading a book, there's untold riches. I mean, it's crazy. You can read a book on something you probably already know pretty well, and you'll realize, oh, there's so much more, whether it's patterns or features or best practices. You'll just realize there's so much more here than whatever shows up on my Twitter feed or or the top of Hacker News. Like There are some really boring, basic, fundamental things that I can learn from a book in a field that I'm already pretty good at. But nobody ever picks it up. Everybody thinks it's out of date, it's for beginners or whatever. And so honestly, if you want to get ahead, read a programming book. It's very easy. Do you think there's something to reading a physical book versus a digital book? And if not, do you think there's a distinction between reading a book and like reading the documentation or guides for a tool? Because I think a lot of the software work that we do these days is like, gluing together different libraries and packages and tools and frameworks. And it's like, I don't know that I would necessarily advise someone that wants to get better at using Tailwind to go find a dead tree Tailwind book. I like programming books, man, but it's 2023. I'm not going to go to Barnes and Noble. Well, you've just hit me in several sensitive places. I love Barnes and Noble, love going there. I love O'Reilly books, love reading them, and I love reading them on paper. But yes, I take your point. Yeah. So I think Tailwind is another good example as compared to something like MySQL, right? One of these books I have back here is like from 2012 and I bought it like a year ago and I read through it and it was still pretty good. If you were to read through a book on Bootstrap from 2010, it'd be like, this makes no sense. This is stupid. So we'll say Tailwind versus CSS. If you were to buy a book on CSS, you'd probably learn some stuff. And that would give you a universal overview of what CSS is and how it works and features that are available to it. And then you could slot in Tailwind elsewhere without a book. So multiple questions. I think Dead Tree is better in my opinion, or rather, let's say it's better for me for reference material. So for reference material, I will buy a physical book or I will print stuff out and read it on paper. Well, you are a monster because we've seen on Twitter photos of you with your own hand-bound documentation book sitting on the beach with a a highlighter. So I'm not sure... I'm not sure that you're not the the average use case. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So, so let's talk about that because I was reading all these MySQL books and I like being able to read it on paper because I like being able to highlight it. The digital detritus, if I were to like, I don't even know what I would do, add it to Evernote, RIP, like where would I put all these notes? And so I like being able to highlight it physically. But then the documentation is a whole nother thing, right? So the MySQL docs have two sections. There are maybe 14 or 15 chapters of it. And two of the sections are really, really high impact sections. And one of them is on like optimizing MySQL. And it covers like indexes and writing good queries. And that's a really good one. And the other one is data types. And so it covers like, when should you use date versus date time versus timestamp? And I think if you want to get ahead, I think another extremely easy hack is to read the documentation for the tool that you're using. 
people don't read, much less reference the documentation. They'll like come across a specific issue and never go look at the docs and just run into a wall for four hours until they figure it out. So that's just referencing the docs. Reading the docs comprehensively from front to back, again, is going to give you this, it's basically like a mini map in a strategy game. Like you get to see the entire world and then you know in the future, oh, I'm writing a command line and I need to validate input from the user, an optional argument from the user. I remember that that is possible. I'm going to go look at the docs, right? Just remember immediately that how to do it. But I think reading, it blows my mind. I don't know what mechanics do, but surely they read the manuals for the cars that they're working on, right? And we like, let's take Laravel or Rails, for example. We're like these professional Laravel or Rails developers and we've never read the documentation. It's like, man, like you gain a ton from experience, of course. But knowing what is available, if you want to like any of the listeners want to test this theory, read through the documentation of your favorite framework or library or whatever. Find something that you didn't know and tweet it out and see how many other people didn't know that. They're like, oh, you're a genius. You're like, no, dude, I read the the documentation. I wonder how we sort of got here a little bit because the thing that comes to mind for me is at some point when you've programmed enough, you'll say, oh, I don't need program for five years, right? I don't, it doesn't matter what language I can pick up another language. And so I think you probably reach the point where you don't want to like go back to the beginner mind when it comes to a new language. So you're like, okay, I've done Java for five years. I'm going to go write PHP. And you know enough programming that you can sort of flail around by just trying things versus if you didn't know anything at all, or you were still very early in your career, maybe you would say, oh, I need to start with the guide. But somewhere along the way, I feel like we got this meme that's like, oh yeah, if one programming language, like you can learn another one. So don't bother like reading the programming book, just pick it up and you'll be fine. I don't know where that comes from. The cynical part of me wants to say that that's just plain arrogance. People being like, I don't need anyone's help. The optimistic side of me wants to say that a lot of the stuff does transfer. And so what you're left with is little maybe syntax differences or functions that differ or minor features that differ. And like, you know, at the end of the day, you're still programming and the hard part is not how do you check to see if a key exists in an array? The hard part is how do you build the application? And so whether it's one or both of those or some combination, I still think it's a disservice to yourself to let's say I'm a PHP developer and I decide, okay, I'm going to go pick up Ruby. I could probably stumble through it. I think I would start so much further ahead if I picked up a Ruby or Rails book and just read through, just skimmed through it. Because then what that does is that links all of my PHP knowledge to Ruby knowledge. And again, I have this framework. I'd be like, oh, okay, in PHP, I do it this way. In Ruby, it looks like you do it this way. Even if you could do it a different way, it's nice to know what is the generally accepted principle in Ruby for how you check to see if an array key exists or a hash has a key, whatever y'all call it. Even that, it's like, okay, we have associative arrays, you have hash maps. Ah, What are the differences there? It'd be nice to get an overview before I just start writing PHP in Ruby. You know what I mean? Yeah. It seems like in the industry, like we have these like very jarring kind of whiplash effects of, I think this is just one of them, right? We see this, I think there's parallels 
people will say, don't do big design up front. Well, people used to do too much up front. And so they say, don't do big design up front. But that means that people don't do any design up front. What I was thinking when you talked about your example of moving languages and like, oh, you'll be so much further if you just like skim the guides. It's like a lot of times when people start working on a feature, like they want to immediately put fingers to keyboard and start like writing the code. And I think a lot of times it's like, oh, if you actually would take one hour to think of how you're going to solve the problem and like work through a couple of options, like on a piece of paper or something, then I think the whole process will go smoother. But for whatever reason, I think like programmers tend to, to think that like, oh, any time that is not typing is like wasted or inefficient or something. And so maybe it's similar with, oh, I would rather just start learning Ruby by typing Ruby code instead of saying, oh, actually, if I take a day to read a Ruby book, then like the next two weeks are going to go much better than if I spend two weeks flailing around. Yep. I think that is correct. And I think just imagining this language changing scenario, I think one of the great benefits of reading a programming book is to me, at least the way that I read it is I literally read it with no pressure at all to remember or honestly to even learn that much. And so what I'll do is I'll just, you saw me on the beach and that photo on Twitter, like I just read through it and whatever I remember, I remember and whatever I forget, I forget. But it gives me this great sense of peace to be like, I'm just kind of exploring. I wonder what's on the next page. This part's really boring. I'm just going to skip over it. Oh, this code block is interesting. Let me see that's how they check for keys and a hash. Like, that's really interesting. Let me move on. And so I think taking all of the pressure off of, I'm going to read this book and be really good at Ruby when I'm done. No, I'm not. I'm going to read this book and know the names of some functions and like how y'all set up classes and maybe a little bit more. But after that, it's like, yeah, then I'll start watching tutorials or getting my hands dirty or, or whatever. When you were in school, did you like actually read the textbooks when they were assigned? I honestly didn't read them that much, but what I did was I paid attention in class. And so I have this one professor, I was an accounting major, and I have this one upper level accounting professor that I'm still in touch with. He's a great guy. And he still jokes with me about the fact that I just would look at him the whole time. I wouldn't take notes. Some people are like furiously copying stuff down. And I'm like, I bet everything he's talking about is basically straight out of the textbook. So if I need to reference it, I can. But I think the better value is going to be for me to sit here and pay super close attention because, again, it's the same kind of idea where he's going to fill my brain with signposts that I can then later go back in the textbook if I need to and look and be like, oh, yeah, I remember he said this thing about deferred liabilities. I see. Okay, this fleshes that idea out a little bit more. Yeah, I think there's a tension between trying to like learn something very quickly, which I think leads to the behavior of, oh, I need to find a problem and then refer back to this book or this resource to solve the problem that I have at hand. It kind of reminds me of like, when I think back to like primary school or whatever, it's like when you had like the math textbook and it's okay, I'm going to like go to the like problems I'm supposed to do for the assignment, then go back to the text part of the math book to like figure out how to actually solve this problem and only do enough to like know how I can solve the problem and move on. There's like a pressure to like solve it quickly, or maybe there's a pressure that's, oh, we expected that you already knew how to do this. And I think on the other side of that spectrum, though, it's I've worked on some projects where it's like, oh, yeah, before we actually get started on the project, like we've got a month before the project starts. Everyone familiarize yourself with this new tool or framework or something. And I find that to be like equally ineffective because you don't really know like what you're going to need to know. So it feels like you're back to like, I'm just reading this reference book, trying to learn everything 
And there's also pressure because we've got this dedicated time to learn this thing. So it's like, yeah, if I'm not able to take this month and like get ramped up or raring to go, is that a failure? So I don't know. I'm not sure if that brings up anything in your mind, but that's just been my experience with trying to learn from books, I think. Yeah, I totally buy that point of view. I think you're correct, especially in the, okay, I'm going to spend a month studying. Ooh, I wouldn't even do that. I'm a big book guy. The big book lobby has me and I wouldn't even do that. I think each one serves a different purpose. So you can read a bunch of books on how to do construction, physical construction, how to build a house. And you're still going to learn 10 times as much building your first house. But I think what you can learn, it's like what you can learn ahead of time in our case is, okay, how should you build a foundation? What are all the tools that you need? And then you get on the job site and you're like, okay, now I'm really learning. At least I know that this is, yeah, this is a table saw. This is concrete. This is a two by four. I think I'm supposed to use a two by six or a two by 10 as a header based on that thing I read. I should go back and reference the thing I read to see if it was a two by six or two by 10. And so you can't eliminate the building phase from the actual, that's the part where you're really going to learn. But it'd be nice going into the building phase if you knew the difference between a table saw and a chop saw. Or the fact that like a table saw exists, I think is a big part of it, right? Because if you don't know that these certain things exist, then you're going to have a really hard time discovering that on the fly because you don't know what you don't know, right? You're just going to be groping around in the dark. Let's change gears a little bit here. So when I think back to the seminal programming books that I read early in my career, and I looked recently and it was like, on my blog, I used to keep, I would do like a write-up for every book that I read that sort of was like, this is why it matters. Or like, this is what I learned, like a little book review. And so I look back 10 years ago and was like, oh, I was reading 20 programming books a year. And I look now and it's like, I don't think I read any programming books in the last year. And so some of that, I think it is not necessarily the programming books are worse. It's like, well, I've had 10 more years of experience and things like that. But I'm just kind of curious. I still see when people talk about what are the foundational programming books, they're all from like the early 2000s. Has no new programming knowledge been unearthed? And I think that's probably not true, but I'm curious if you have any take on that. What I imagine you are thinking of as like the foundational books are probably less like PHP 5.3. And more like solid design patterns, gang of four, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, the reference I always give is like the pragmatic programmer is like the book that sort of is everyone says like, yeah, every programmer should read this or whatever. This was published in 1999. So it's coming up on being 25 years old. And certainly there's been like new additions and I'm sure they've had someone come in and tweak some of the content a little bit, but. I think it's it's just interesting that it's like, oh, in the past 25 years, like nothing has been written that people would say is a replacement for that. Yeah, I don't find that to be all that strange, honestly. What I think is going on there, and I talked about earlier, I was an accounting major, so I don't really know all this computer science stuff. And maybe that's another reason why I value books so highly, which we can come back to. But I think what's happening there is a lot of those like foundational books are more about architecture and patterns and principles and thought processes and less about like what is the specific tool. So like the solid design principles or whatever 
haven't changed in a million years. I just think that some things are fundamentally like some things are fundamental truths about software and they just haven't been shaken yet. I would imagine we would find that across a lot of professions, like probably something like design or architecture would have similar things. Like I think there's a book called A Timeless Way of Building, and I think it's pretty old. Yeah, it's still recommended. It's actually extremely hard to find and very expensive because it's like still a pretty good reference point of like a house like a house from 100 years ago, like looks like a house today. And certainly there are implementation details inside of it. But fundamentally, it is still four walls and a roof. Yeah. And fundamentally, like this book talks about there are rooms that feel good to humans and there are rooms that make you feel bad. And a timeless way of building talks about that's the name of the book talks about how you build a house in a way like a human scaled way and how rooms should be shaped and the flow and that kind of stuff. And that just simply doesn't need to be revisited every year. What does need to be revisited is like, all right, material science has improved a whole lot. So let's talk about the best way to insulate a house or plumb a house or stuff like that. And so I think these seminal books were written early to middle of where we are in like programming history. And that's because they discovered these principles and wrote like the base truth on it. And we just really haven't, I don't think we've had a big enough shift to like necessitate new foundational truths yet. Yeah. I think something else that's interesting is like the early 2000s was sort of the last time when we had like a giant media and cultural monoculture where, and you can see it in these books, right? There used to be like three or four like big programming book publishers. And these were just because of the way that content was distributed. Like we talked about earlier, like you go to the Barnes and Noble and like buy the programming book. And so you had to make books that had wide appeal and also the logistics of printing those books and the production costs and all that it led to this thing where, yes, there is just a handful of like programming books being released. And so I think what happens was people have this shared cultural experience of like, oh, if you were a programmer in the year 2003, of course, you would say that the Pragmatic Programmer was like an important book because it was the best of the 15 programming books that were available at the bookstore and like the library and your university or high school classroom. And I think now... Between the internet and blogging, social media, independent course creators, YouTube, all these things, there's just so many more resources that even if there was books that arguably are more important or do better describe the foundations of programming, it's just like so fragmented that I I don't think any of these names rise to the top as you can see things happening in outside of programming too. I mean, if you think about even like music who are the big musicians of today, it's like, it's still the same ones that were big in like the 2000s. Or you have these people that are like, oh, like I'm huge on TikTok or I have like 5 million Spotify followers and I've never heard of this person. Man, never Um, have I felt older than when people will go on like other pot, like my first million or something. Like, yeah, I'm a TikToker. I've got 50 million followers. I'm like, I'm sorry. I have never, ever heard of you. There's so many of these celebrities now that are arguably as popular as they were before, but like the media distribution channels are so different, right? Like it used to be that if you were famous, if like you went on Oprah and it's like nowadays there's not that there's a million different ecosystems with a million different 
celebrities inside each of them. I think that's real. Big television has splintered into a long tail of YouTube channels. And I think that's probably pretty true in terms of educational material. There wasn't a Laracasts in 2003. And then Envato started Tuts Plus and there started to be some video content. And now there's all kinds of video content and also independent blogs. A person publishing educational material outside of a publisher 20 years ago just wasn't a thing. And so I do think that's true. I think one book in the database world that has kind of become maybe not quite to like that level, but has become elevated is, goodness, it's called Use the Index Luke. I think that's the website is Use the Index Luke. And it's just a very, very good practical overview of indexes and how they work. And so there's still some stuff that breaks through, but I feel like, yeah, there are so many niche channels that there aren't any. And there's, like I said, there's been no fundamental changes in how we design software. There have been a lot of opinions and some shifts, but like the stuff they wrote back then is still pretty spot on. So do you think that books are sort of banking on that legacy prestige that they have? Because it used to be that was sort of one of the highest accolades you could achieve was you're a published author of a program book that's like, oh, you must sort of know your stuff. So with this explosion in the self-publishing and content production stuff, I think it's like very much democratized and given a lot of new voices an opportunity that they never would have had. But at the same time, how are we now left to like sort through what are someone's credentials for being an expert on this? Does anyone actually write code or should they write code in the way that is described? And if there are no barriers to entry, how do we then avoid picking our one book that we're going to read and having it be a bad one? I think this goes back to when I was mentioning, you know, I picked up all these MySQL books because I wanted somebody trustworthy. That is still a pretty big deal to me. I still believe, and maybe maybe this is an archaic belief, I still believe that if somebody has made it through a reputable publisher, not only do they probably know their stuff, but that book has undergone technical review by more than one person that pretty much knows their stuff. And so I could sum up my thesis with books are a good foundation. And so if we're saying that books are a good foundation, you kind of want to build your foundation on something that you know is pretty much more often than not correct. And then on top of that, you can layer nuance of blog posts or hot takes of tweets or whatever. But having some sort of trustworthy foundation is really important to me. And so that's why when I'm entering into a, a study of something that I don't really know super well, going straight to a blog puts all of that work back on me. Like it puts the vetting and the cross-referencing and the checking, it puts all of that labor back on me to be like, who is this person? Does this person have any idea what they're actually talking about? Or is it just somebody, you know, it's got some back end and this is the top of the funnel and they're trying to sell me some course, which maybe they're good, maybe they're not. Yeah, I think the incentives can get misaligned very quickly. And I think a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing in recent years is more like falling in this like edutainment uh, space where it is technically education. It's not wrong necessarily. It's maybe lacking context to appeal or to entertain. 
but I think it's really easy for both people to look at this material and think that they are learning or improving. And I think it also sort of pushes out some of that strong foundational content. Because I think you're in sort of an interesting position in that you sort of, I think you can see it from both sides, both as someone who is like a heavy consumer, but also a producer of content. Yeah, the edutainment thing is new to me in the past year or so in that I've just started to like consume a little bit of it and also started to produce a little bit of it. And I feel torn on the value of it the way that I see some people doing it. So I think my concern with edutainment, and I think you see this on YouTube. I think you basically just see this on YouTube, maybe a little bit of Twitch, but Twitch is kind of its own beast. You see it on YouTube where people will have really, really strong opinions and will make a video about why you know X is stupid. And then they'll make a, a video later about how they were wrong about X and X is great. And you're like, wait, where's the nuance? And I think the thing that they're going for is not strictly education, but more like commentary and of the moment, not like reaction videos, but of the moment reactions. Something popped up on Twitter and they have a hot take or hot opinion about it. And they make this really strong stance and then they just move on and they never think about that thing again. And what I'm seeing happen is people that follow edutainment don't discount it as, ah, this is just his opinion on Flutter or whatever the some framework is. This is just his opinion on that right now because he's mad and like, oh, this is so fun. I'm going to watch it and then move on. They take it as, oh, this is the gospel about this thing. And that makes me super nervous just as like the landscape of programming. So any edutainment YouTube videos that I make, I I still only talk about things that I know a lot about, which ends up being Laravel, PHP, and MySQL, because I don't want to offer hot takes on things that I don't know about because people may not understand that I'm just ranting. And they may say like, oh, no, this thing is bad because this random person on YouTube said so. What qualifies me? So I think edutainment is super fun to watch, but I would it makes me a little bit nervous. And there are people who do it really, really well. I think the primogen is somebody who does it really, really well. Like he's clearly a genius, but it's also clearly doing entertainment. And so I think that works out really well. And his opinions are usually based in his experience. Yeah, I, I do wonder if we've lost something as an industry because we've sort of devalued formal education and like you don't need a degree and you can be self-taught or there's so many free resources online. For better or worse, a degree requires usually you're being taught by professionals that are credentialed, that have some sort of ethical, if not guidance, then at least a culture of teaching that we are here to teach the material. And obviously they're trying to make it engaging, but at the end of the day, I think they're maybe more, more invested in like doing the right thing than doing the popular thing. Because a lot of times what happens with some of this, I'll just say like lower effort content is you almost get rewarded for things the come up and the come down of like you fire off some sort of uninformed opinion, like you get points for that. And then if you go back later and say, oh, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I've changed my mind. They're like, oh, wow. Like you're very introspective. Like you get, you almost get like double points for being 
wrong versus if, well, if you would have done things in the correct order and thought about what you were saying and said, do I have a responsibility to the people that are following me to be giving them advice that I actually feel good about? Or like if this was a friend that I was in the room talking to them in person, is that different than I'm just going to blast this out to like 10,000 people that I'd never directly interact with? Yes. Big time. You get points for saying Tailwind is the worst thing ever. And then you get points for saying, oh, I actually tried Tailwind and it's actually not that bad. And you're like, yeah, that's what I've been saying. Where's the nuance in the communication? And I think Twitter obviously doesn't reward nuance. YouTube really doesn't either. I mean, with YouTube, you got to hook them in the first, you know, 30 seconds and you got to keep them watching. And if it bleeds, it leads, right? Like people want hot takes and opinions and controversy. And so I'm trying to carve out this niche of I'm not going to give you controversy. I'm going to tell you my opinions on things I know deeply and basically ignore everything else. People will ask me like, hey, can you do a a comparison of PHP to Python. I'm like, no, I can't. I don't know Python. It wouldn't be fair. I can't personally make honest content about that because I don't know anything about Python and I'm not going to pretend like I do. So how do we as consumers and or producers of content, how do you fight against the treadmill of like lower effort content can be churned out faster than good stuff can be produced? Like I know, for instance, You spent a lot of time making a video recently and then other people have just been, oh, I will take that video and I will like stick my face in the corner and I will chime in every 30 seconds with cool or no, I don't agree or wow. And then they're basically piggybacking off of your effort. And so on one hand, I can see arguments that like, oh, it's being exposed to new people and some people are actually providing thoughtful commentary. Some people are in essence like re-uploading the work in your intellectual property that you just spent countless hours producing. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that or if that's something you're sort of wrestling with or how you see that playing out. So the first question is like, how do we as consumers basically judge slash protect? I think there is at least one way. Maybe there are a couple ways. There are people for whom publishing content has higher stakes. So when I created that MySQL for developers course, I was publishing that under PlanetScale's brand. Like I'm doing that as an employee of PlanetScale. And so I've got a lot on, I've got a lot of skin in the game there. If I'm going to go and speak on behalf of PlanetScale, you better believe that every one of those videos was reviewed for technical accuracy by somebody smarter than me inside of planet scale. And so I think that's one way that like, unfortunately, brands still matter. You can pretty much still trust that anything coming out of RIP CSS tricks, like anything coming out of there is probably of pretty high quality. And again, what you're doing is you're outsourcing a little bit of that to the brand because you are kind of assuming that somebody inside of there has checked it. And once you get to content mill levels, like I think DigitalOcean just churns stuff out. And I assume they have some sort of check and balance, but like they're publishing five articles a day. It's like, makes me a little nervous. So I think you can inherit some credibility from the brand. If you go and you find a single YouTuber that's doing things without any association to anyone, it's like they could say whatever they want. I mean, so that like you kind of have to, 
you have to get a trustworthiness score from somewhere. And maybe that's you follow them on Twitter and you've followed their YouTube and you know that this person has reasonable takes. And so therefore you don't have to continually check. Is this a reasonable take? You can be like, I, I trust that individual. I mean, that's how, that's how life has happened for thousands of years. So I think the other question about remixing, repurposing, reacting to videos, that's only happened to me once. And that happened just recently. I mean, it happened, it was released today. And it was a video of a guy called the Primogen. And he watched on stream or like, yeah, actually on stream and recorded it. He watched my PHP doesn't suck anymore video and reacted to it. And so the deal is he's on a green screen and my video is playing in the background. He's in the corner. He's watching it and pausing it and talking about a bunch of stuff. The way that he did that, I'm totally fine with for a few reasons. One, his channel's like 10 or 12 times bigger than mine, maybe 20 times bigger than mine. It's like, that's awesome. Thanks for the views. The views don't go to me, but he exposes me to a lot of people that I don't know. The other reason I'm okay with that is because we talked about it before. If somebody that I didn't know that I wasn't friends with took my video and restreamed it, I'd be like, what the hell, man? But I know the primogen and he was like, hey, I'm going to do this. You cool with that? I'm like, yeah, that would be awesome. I would love that. And the, (laughs) the only thing I told him was like, you have to be nice to me. Like you can be mean about PHP. I don't really care about that. You can make fun of PHP, but you got to be nice to me. And he's one of the nicest. I mean, part of his shtick is like being a character, but he's one of the nicest guys. And so that I'm fine with if somebody, and if you watch the video, you can see that he's constantly comparing and contrasting to other languages and talking about good and bad things. And I'm okay with that because it shows, oh, this guy actually knows some stuff. People that just watch it and pause it and are like, oh, that's crazy. And then keep watching. I'd be like, dude, that's kind of lame. So there's this whole landscape of like weird YouTube ethos. And I know that Theo, who's another big YouTuber, did a react video to like a full documentary, recorded himself watching a full documentary. And the people that made the documentary were like, hey, can you take this down? And he was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And I'm like, what? <laughs> there's just, there's, there's, I don't fully understand the culture yet. Yeah. This is one of those things that like, it's still settling out, like what the norms and expectations should be. Cause I think it's interesting. It's well, if it's a big channel, then we're giving you exposure and it's like, okay, so what is the number of subscribers where it's okay to like infringe someone's copyright? Yeah. I don't know. And I don't think I would do it because I don't have enough to say about things that I don't know. I guess I could do it to a PHP video, but in terms of infringing copyright, I wouldn't do it without asking permission, which Primogen had my full permission. And I was like excited when he said he was going to do it. So that's a huge thing to me is does the creator want you to do it? And I wanted him to do that. (laughs) Yeah, I think software culture in general has been fairly anti copyright as a whole, like the whole like kind of open source movement and things like that. I think the interesting part is that what that led to was like people developing more permissive licensing. But then I think it's like, on the other hand, people assume that everything is like MIT licensed. And it's like, no, like we support software licenses, right? And yes, my license says like, don't do this and you're breaking the license. And they're like, but don't enforce that. So I don't know. I think there's a lot of weird culture clash things of what is fair in like media criticism and like, how does that interact with, well, is it media criticism if you are reading someone's blog post on your YouTube stream. I don't know. I don't think these are like well tested. 
both legally or ethically of what should you be doing? Yeah, I don't know. If anyone else wants to do a react video to any one of my videos, I would request that you ask me first and then we go from there. But like somebody did just take the planet scale course videos and upload them to YouTube. It's like, well, you can't do that. And so we had to do legal strikes to take them down. So yeah, there's some stuff that's super clear and then some that's like, you should probably ask the creator. Aaron, information wants to be free. Sure. Also, Aaron wants to have money to have food to put on the table. So those two things kind of stand opposed to each other. Yeah. Information wants to be free. Okay. (laughs) There's a whole rant there. But yeah, our legal department didn't love that very much. and We took care of that pretty quickly. (laughs) So we've come to the end of the episode here. And as we do, we must ask the question, programming books, do we need them? Programming books, we do need them. I hope I have made the case that programming books lay a great foundation upon which you can build, and programming books will give your brain a place to put things that you see on Twitter, Hacker News, Reddit, whatever. Gives you buckets to put future knowledge in. I think for me, it's going to be a yes. I think we're fighting the good fight and trying to keep high quality content getting produced and consumed. I think it's probably ultimately a losing battle, but I'd rather be on this side than on the other. And if we get rid of programming books, then we will have nothing to use to prop up our monitors. Thanks for listening. You can find show notes and links at yagni.fm and find me on Twitter at underscore Swanson.